Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Bree Lee, best-selling and award-winning author of Eggshell Skull, asks who gets to be smart in her new book, a forensic and hard-hitting exploration of knowledge, power, and luck. Interrogating the adage, knowledge is power, and calling institutional prejudice to account, Bree once again dives into her own privilege and presumptions to bring us the stark and confronting results. Far from offering any equality of opportunity, Australia's education system exacerbates social stratification. Before we start a quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, interviewing Bree Lee, I'm delighted to hand over to academic and author Susan Carland. It is so, so nice to be here. Thank you for doing that beautiful welcome to country, Christine. I am now going to introduce the person that you're all actually here to hear about and hear from. Bree Lee is an author and a freelance writer. Her journalism has appeared in publications such as The Monthly, The Saturday Paper, Guardian Australia and Crikey. Her first book, Eggshell Skull, just casually won Biography Year at the ABA Awards, the People's Choice Award, the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and was long-listed for 2019 Stella Prize. I know from her website it got heaps more awards than that as well. Probably couldn't fit it in the book, so many of them. She's also a non-practising lawyer and continues to engage in legal research and issues-based advocacy. Really, welcome. First of all, a huge congratulations to you on this book that I have to say at numerous points and for many different reasons, this book stabbed me between my ribs. It's a phenomenal book. How proud of it are you? Oh, thank you, Susan. Um, I just want to take a moment as well to acknowledge that I was um, born and raised with immense gratitude on Yagara and Turrbal land, which is Brisbane in Queensland. And where I'm coming to you from now is Gadigal land in the Eora Nation, which is, of course, Sydney, New South Wales. Uh, proud of the book? Ooh, it's really difficult to say when it's been out for sort of three days. I hadn't read it. It's just sort of the way it happens that you um, hand, you know, you spend three years working on something by yourself and then you hand it in and do all the proofreading and editing. I'm looking down because I'm looking at it. I have my very dog-eared copy here. Uh, and then you don't read it for six months or so while it gets its cover and it comes out. And um, last week I sat down and reread it again and I I was like, oh, that's that's not so bad. <laughs> Oh, that was a good point. Very well articulated. I want to start at the start of the book. The book begins with you visiting your friend Damien, who is a Rhodes Scholar, and you're visiting him at Oxford. And that visit really floodlights within you some deep feelings of intellectual insecurity. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Being in there also sparked within you something else, uh, a desire to get to the bottom of not just what we call knowledge or education, but to sort of draw back the curtain on these things, to sort of see who's the Wizard of Oz actually behind these concepts of education and knowledge. What actually motivated you to go on this journey that ended up becoming this book? Mm. So I, a few years ago when I, like the first moment that I found out that Damien, who's still my friend, the wonderful Damien, found out that he got this Rhodes Scholarship. Obviously, first and foremost, I was just delighted for my dear friend, but also really felt like a punch in the gut. Just that sort of winded slash wounded feeling. And 
that was at a time in my life when I still very much had outsourced my priorities. Everything that I had been told at high school and university was that him winning this incredible award, scholarship, whatever you want to call it, meant that he was a winner and therefore I was a loser. And of course, that's what was happening. And I just, I don't know, maybe it's just a writerly thing, but I am inclined to interrogate any time I get that feeling of being punched in the gut, that uh, any really immediate, strong knee-jerk response that I'm unable to automatically articulate, I think, oh, that's a bit suspicious. Like, do is that something I really believe in? Where does that come from? Where is that going? And then when I went over to visit him and he so graciously took me on a tour, both of Rhodes House and his college, but also Oxford and all the other colleges, it was just so... <laughs> absurd and so extraordinary. Another student there said, which I agree with, that it's sort of the oldest maintained bubble in the world. It just left me with a real feeling of suspicion and and that I had only just started to, yeah, sort of peel back the lid or I suppose what you just said, like sort of draw back the curtain on who is actually pulling the strings, like where these resources are coming from and where they're going to. And then by the time, like it just happened so organically that that at the beginning of the book in the first chapter, asking questions particularly about Cecil Rhodes and the Rhodes Must Fall movement, statues, curriculum. And then in the year that I was finishing, the book was 2020 and it was Black Lives Matter and the statues coming down and questions about curriculum and national identity and history. And it provided a very organic bookending of the key, really sort of philosophical underlying questions in the book. You mentioned in your answer then that um, it felt like Damien was a winner and therefore you must be a loser, which is a nice sort of segue into one of the anchoring themes of your book, this concept of kiriaki. And I wondered if you could explain to us what kiriaki is and why you feel it's such a good or even the best explanation of so much of our approach to education and to knowledge. So you you say kiriaki. I've only ever heard it pronounced as kiriaki, but it doesn't really matter. Um, doesn't make this difference. is actually really interesting, and right. I feel like this is kind of a very meta discussion about intellect and knowledge. Because when I read it, I thought, okay, kiriaki was how I read it, and then I thought, I have a Greek friend. I'm going to ask him, and I said, is this like Kyrios, like Nick Kyrios? And he recorded it for me on his voice, and he said, it's Kyrios, like Nick Kyrios. It's kiriaki. So I said, okay, well, I'm about to go and do a book event with about 200 people, so this better be right. So I feel like this is such a great example of knowledge and information. So we can, whether we trust my friend Dimitri or not, um, that's why I said Kiriaki. I'm more than happy to defer to you on Kiriaki. No, no, no. I can't even, now I'm going to blame it on my friend Omid Tofijian, who, who of course was the translator of Beirut's Buchani's <laughs> book, No Friend But the Mountains. Um, but now that, <laughs> now I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I can even, I don't know how to say it, but I know what it means. Well, I know what it means to yeah. me. And basically I, I was so determined to bring this word, I consider it to be like a tool or a lens. I really wanted to find a way to make it accessible to sort of a non-academic audience. So the term kiriaki, kairiaki, whatever you want, was originally coined 
by a feminist theologian, Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza. And the idea is that the sort of most plain English way that it helps me to understand it is that it's a particularly helpful way of understanding systems and societies and in particular institutions. And it kind of goes in the same way that intersectional feminism goes one step further than feminism. Kyriarchy goes one step further than patriarchy. And all you need to remember is that it all comes down to pyramids, hierarchical pyramids and hierarchical systems, and that power is held by people at the top. And the more people in the rungs towards the bottom, like fuels and pushes the power of the people at the top. And the reason it's particularly a helpful sort of tool or lens in looking at education systems is because this real insidious recurring theme I kept finding and coming up against the more research I did both in the UK but also this good little colonial outpost that Australia is, is that so many systems and institutions which are supposedly supposed to be about knowledge sharing actually gain all of their power and their prestige and their ability to charge high fees which gets them more money in turn not by how much knowledge they share, actually, but by how powerfully they can exclude people. That we use it right through universities, sandstone universities, the sort of top five big universities in Australia, take, I think, maybe about 10% of equity students. They are prestigious by virtue of who they exclude. The way we hear secondary schools spoken about, um, in particular Catholic and independent, basically just private schools spoken about, you hear about like the most exclusive private schools as a badge or a marker of high quality. And actually, if we're supposed to be helping young people and educating people and sharing knowledge, we should be embarrassed about that. But the reason they're so prestigious is because there are so few of them. And just the sort of lens or the tool of Kyriaki helps me to understand as well that it's not about trying to find the point at which you exist on the pyramid because, of course, of what we know about intersectional feminism, people can be oppressed and oppressor at exactly the same time. What I'm interested in is what keeps that scaffolding strong. And so I tried in the book not to just finger wag at parents who send their kids to private schools because individual parents feel an obligation to put their child's interests first, but I think it's fair to say the government has an obligation to treat all children equally. And it's, it is the case, I believe, that a core part of Australia's identity is aspiration and is the dream of social mobility such that people who are even in the lower and bottom rungs so believe that they can give their child a leg up and are so determined to believe that their hard work can create a better future for their children, that they're actually inadvertently keeping this pyramid that does so much damage really strong. So, yeah, and I got it um, because, sorry, it's a long answer, but it's a complicated question. I, I still cannot believe he said this, but I'd met Omid, my friend, maybe for half a dozen times when we were at Ubud Writers Festival together. And I was asking his advice because I think he does an incredible job of combining academia with activism. And I was trying to decide whether or not um, that I would do a PhD. And if I did, if it would be law or writing, et cetera. And he sort of didn't want to give me any advice about it. And I was like, why? why? You're the perfect person to ask for advice about this. And he said to me that 
the academy, like academia, was the second most violent and oppressive system he had ever encountered, second only to Manos prison. And it's because of all of this kairiaki stuff. And, yeah, that's why there's, like, a whole chapter in the book about it because it's so shocking. When he said that, how did you understand that description of an institution that you were very much at the time really Mm. wanting to be more a part of? Mm. Well, I think at the very least I was willing to accept that I didn't completely understand it. And that's why I went back and read No Friend But The Mountains again and again. I went and read everything Omid had written about. Um, He's the head of the chapter Why Is My Curriculum White? the activists. He'd written about the Roads Must Fall movement. He's written about white curriculums. And I went and read so much of his thinking. And now I understand how much, how much the academy is a tool of social stratification, basically, mm-hmm. at its heart. And that and that's not even including some of the many stories that he has that are his to tell. You know, I'm a good little middle class white girl. <laughs> there are ways that the academy is friendly to me in many ways that are not friendly to him. You say on page 167. Oh, God, what have I said? (laughs) This whole book is just full of highlights and underlines. You say on page 167. In the Australian context, it's not always true to say knowledge is power. What's much more true is to acknowledge that whoever has the power shapes the knowledge. Mm. What was the most shocking example of this that you came across in the research for this book? I would say there were so many shocking examples, but honestly just the most continuously obviously wrong one is the way so many elements of the academy, and just for anyone listening who hasn't read it yet, when I say the academy I mean Yes, the universities, but also the professorships and the scholarships and the peer-reviewed publications. I mean, sort of the whole package of the academy. The way it claims objectivity, the way it claims this sort of impartiality and an ability to clearly observe and understand from a detached perspective, and in doing so, consistently and so disrespectfully either ignore or try to basically violently get rid of Indigenous knowledge. And I don't just mean, like, there's some really important stuff in here by, for example, Maggie Walters, who's very high up at University of Tasmania. And she talks about, and many others, um, Indigenous academics, talk about this pressure they feel to basically add a slide to a presentation Mm -hmm. that Indigenous Knowledge, it can be appreciated if it's didgeridoos and dot painting. But what is not actually respected at all is Indigenous ways of knowing, Indigenous ways of expressing, Indigenous data, Indigenous research. Those are things that are so troublesome to some of the core pillars of identity of the Academy. Um, And I believe the Academy just reveals how blind it is and how incapable it is of knowledge sharing, knowledge gathering, that it just refuses to actually, often refuses to actually truly engage with those perspectives. It's not even willing to admit what it's missing out on, essentially. Hmm. Another quote for you. You say on page 172, Generosity, kindness and patience are the traits we desire in a parent or carer. We don't want to pay for them. 
We do not like to celebrate them for the advancement of society. We like coming home to them once we've finished work for the day. We're not giving the generous people statues. We're not naming buildings and mountain ranges and coves after the patient. You're not going to climb the Kyriakical Pyramid with kindness. And I wanted to ask you how you understand that morally. Why did we decide that intellect was the supreme virtue as opposed to kindness or Mm. patience? Morally, why do you think that is? I don't know why. I just know that we do and we either refuse to admit that we do it or we are just like unwilling to look at the ramifications of what would happen if we sort of undid that incidental conflation. There is a way in which we attribute morality to intelligent people that is just so not okay. And the way I found it uh, the most obvious is in the way we talk to children about what intelligence is or this these sort of trends that sort of come and go in different waves at different times about like that there are so many different ways to be smart or so many different mm. types of intelligence. And I think it says a lot about us that we have to rebrand kindness and empathy and like active listening skills and communication and interpersonal skills, that we have to rebrand those as types of intelligence in order to feel comfortable, like, fully encouraging those in our children. I just take a real issue with the argument that there are all kinds of ways to be smart. I think there are all kinds of ways to be. You know, I was just talking about this with Richard Glover on the radio this afternoon, and he described the moment when he had his first child. And the overwhelming thing that he was filled with was, I just hope that you every single day are happy. And that what we sort of talk about wanting for our children and that they are happy, that they are sort of fulfilled, that they find relationships, either like romantic, platonic, whatever, just meaningful relationships in which they are, these people are generous to each other and like happy and healthy together. And yet we then put them into these streams of educational institutions where those things are nowhere near as rewarded as the goodness and rightness of academic achievement. And I hope that the argument I make about how damaging it's been over the last couple of decades to force schools to be so competitive with each other is sort of connects there, that that schools now the better grades their students get, the more they can charge, the more in demand they are as organisations. And I think it's obvious that young people get whipped up in that. I was certainly whipped up in that. But I think what's less obvious is how parents and teachers can also not realise how much they are telling smart children that they are good. It's really interesting you say that as you were talking about, you know, how all we want for our kids to be happy. And as I think about when my kids come home with their school reports, the front is all all the academic stuff and it's only the very last page where they talk to you about the kids character <laughs> and I tried to have this practice with my kids from the time they were young that when their school reports would come home I'd always say to them I'm going to the back page first because mm. I want to see that you're a good it doesn't matter you can be the smartest kid in the class but if you're a jerk that's a problem what kind of person are you but I think it's very telling that that is the back page of the report card mm. and I guess then the next thing I wanted to ask you about that is you speak in the book about all the the horrific outcomes of the way that we valorize intellect you know the the horrible paths we go down in mm. the way that uh, we think about intellect and smartness 
obviously racism and sexism, as you've spoken about, eugenics, really dark, you know, probably Mm. evil, evil stuff we could say. Mm. I can't imagine if we similarly valorised patience or kindness that they could lead us down such evil paths. Is that wishful thinking? No, I think this this is such an interesting question and it's such a, a, I'm really glad you raised it because this book couldn't, when it's asking like what is intelligence and, and what science can and what science can't tell us about IQs, what is and isn't testable, it just becomes immediately apparent that at every single point in human history when we think we have found any new way of quantifying a person's like intellectual capability, immediately it goes to eugenics. Immediately it becomes about race. It becomes about the population percentages having different characteristics. Immediately becomes about population control, whether that is, like you said, about race, gender, um, and often, unfortunately, about disability or even certainly in certain times of history about sexuality, etc. And it just, it's rife. It's riddled throughout history, like, like termites in wood. It's just throughout that science will go so hard and try so incredibly hard to find the gene or a group of genes that are responsible for intelligence, that they will try, you know, to find different categorizations to make up different sort of taxonomies of labeling and understanding intelligence. And it just always goes absolutely hand in hand with race in particular and and whiteness and white supremacists in particular. And I think it's just really telling that there doesn't seem to be anything remotely close to that sort of desperation and hunger for proof of the categorized ability of humans when it comes to kindness, for example. It's just it doesn't have the same shortcut to superiority, basically, that whatever this thing called intelligence or IQ apparently does. Mm, It's like maybe it's because anyone can be kind, but only certain people were blessed genetically to be smart. So I don't know, is it seen as it's easier to put into some sort of hierarchy? I don't know. But I think it's it's also quite gendered, which is why I have that line about what we Mm. want to put a statue up for versus what we want to come home to at the end of the day when work is done. Like it all, yeah, it all comes together. On page 133, you give the following statistics that a 2018 report by the OECD found that it took a poor person in Denmark two generations to reach average income, a poor person in Sweden three generations, and a poor person in England at least five or 150 years. Australia sits at around four generations, four generations that it will take a poor person in Australia to reach the average income. Then you say social mobility is one of our nation's greatest creation myths. Why do you think Australians persist with this clearly false idea of social mobility and the land of the fair go? It's, you talk in the book about defensive sparks. This mm. seems to be our defensive spark. Why can't we let go of this idea? It's, I think it's because it's, it's just such a core part of our national identity. It's like asking why are we still having the debate about whether we should quote-unquote celebrate quote-unquote Australia Day. It's like there seem to be a couple of kind of core 
fundamental truths that as a nation, we have not yet hit critical mass in terms of being willing to, to look at in the eye. Australia likes to tell itself that it's the bush ranger, but actually it's the cop. It comes back to curriculum because you can't get to a point where we're still celebrating Australia Day unless you have a curriculum that erases the truth of colonisation and allows those sort of settlement narratives to continue, um, which is why curriculum is always such a huge fraught debate. But also I think the other thing that sort of pokes its head up throughout this book is the other component that is so core to Australians' national identity is real estate. The other thing is that we have these nutso house prices and an absolute crisis of housing affordability. And the way we do things here, it doesn't have to be this way. We have an obsession with people owning real estate. And one of the reasons for that is because of a real imbalance between tenant and landlord rights. We don't have things like lifelong leases or 99-year leases. Everything about that Australian dream, even if it's no longer an acre, even if it's an apartment, is about ownership and home ownership. And it's become this point where it's a rite of passage. And that just housing affordability really sort of interweaves with issues of education. Because one of the things, for example, that I have a real issue with is the ability of Catholic and independent schools, private schools generally, to have like vetting procedures um, so that they only take the students that they want to take based on scores or an interview process. That basically en masse discrimination, despite the fact that they get government funding, just does not sit well with me. And the problem is if you got rid of that and said that any school that receives any amount of government funding has to take any student that knocks on their door, all you get is an exacerbation of the already very serious problem of catchment zones. And one of the other stats in the book is that Australia has the fourth worst wealth divide between rich postcodes and poor postcodes. And of course, that overlaps with schools and that when the Gonski report did their initial findings about what types of schools needed more support, it was small schools and regional schools because it all, it just all comes back to postcode and real estate and schools. They're just this like thing and they're all, I mean, to come back to this national identity based on, well, based on a bunch of lies, obviously, and, and this adoration we have for an image of blue-collar workers that is sort of not really true anymore. And we like to tell ourselves that people who are poor deserve to be there because they just don't work hard enough. And we like to tell ourselves that people who are rich and powerful therefore do deserve to be there because we live in a meritocracy. And the more you learn about schools, the more you learn that that is just a farce. Yeah. All right, on to you now. You are incredibly honest in this book and you reveal with great detail insecurities around looking intelligent and wanting to prove yourself and constantly feeling inadequate intellectually. How hard was that to write? Yeah, really hard. Um, I think my feeling about this, and it's been the case with all three of my books so far, is... um, Just as a reader, I am personally deeply suspicious of any book that engages with any kind of issues-based nonfiction, you know, any sort of stakes, you know, if if writing about a problem has stakes, 
I'm suspicious if that book does not tell me who is writing it. What glasses are they wearing? What's their lens on the world? What are their blind spots? What are their subjectivities? Lawyers do it the worst, to be honest, uh, but academics are pretty bad at it often as well. Uh, and I'm both. So, yeah, I just wanted to, uh, to avoid that at all costs. When I went to edit the book, I felt quite embarrassed and nervous in particular about some of the beliefs and ideas that I express in like the first couple of chapters. And of course, the temptation is always to sort of edit those away and somehow create an authorial position in which you always had the knowledge you like finally now do have. Um, but what I really prefer to read as a reader, which I, and I believe reading is the most important job of a writer, is when I feel like the author has taken my hand and is showing me like I'm learning along a journey with them such that when I'm presented with new information and the author's response, I can sort of pick and choose if I disagree with things or if I agree with things because I actually understand the subjective position they're coming from. That idea or that desire to achieve something like that sense of journey was the guiding star of the project when it came to editing and shaping. Mm. That's a hard thing to do, though, essentially to sort of shave pieces of yourself off to in the interest of producing better work. That, that's not an insignificant thing to do. Um, yes. You say at the end of the book <clears throat> that your feelings have evolved and your, your thoughts have evolved. Do you still now ever get, you know, every just now and then that old desperation for those highly ornamental pots, as you call them? <laughs> do they ever come, do you ever feel them sneaking back in? Ah, the highly ornamental pots. Shout out to Virginia Woolf. Um, that's a term that she uses in her book, um, Remove One's Own, which I took and really ran with <laughs> and now really value. Um, do I ever still feel the pull of the pots? Not really. If anything, it's kind of come full circle to the point where I used to have this sort of blind and automatic adoration for the sort of just that sandstone world. And now what I actually feel is more of an automatic sense of suspicion because it just so happened that like almost every statue, like almost every name of a place, like who are these fellowships named after, actually like more often than not what I felt I was finding out in the research was kind of the opposite of a meritocracy, that all of these namesakes and all of these institutions don't reflect the values of the kind of person I want to be. The things that do make me insecure are that I just lost my 260-day streak on Duolingo. That was devastating. Uh, <laughs> things that do make me insecure are when I actually try and talk French to French-speaking people, even though I've been trying to learn it for so many years. Uh, things that make me insecure. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm insecure about much more deep and important things oh. now, about more like not even insecure, like just what do I spend my time worrying about? And it's like, how are the people I love? Like I, I um, or, or actually no, more specifically a better example is like, is my work making a contribution or is it just yeah. adding to the noise? That's something that I'm insecure about because I write about issues that are sort of in the, what, like news cycle or in the body politic and I'm so terrified of just contributing to the noise. I just hate this like noise and so I'm insecure about anything I ever make whether it's a whole new book or whether it's like a 500 word op-ed mm. I'm insecure about whether or not every single thing I put out into the world is actually helping further the conversation that is a beautiful segue to my next question where where do we go from here first of all where do you go from here and then where do we go from here 
um, you, you recognise that it's people like you, good middle-class girl that are mm. you're exactly the kind of person that is made and designed to prop up this hierarchical system. Mm. And you say on page 262, the academy as part of the state is an oligarchy best imagined as a dinner table with people like Rupert Murdoch and Tony Abbott and whoever funds the Centre for, quote, independent studies, shoveling caviar into their mouths and occasionally vomiting so they can fit more in. The challenge for me will be to figure out how to live my life in a way that doesn't feed them. The challenge is to prevent the hierarchical system from self-perpetuating. Get the knowledge out of the bubble, always take responsibility for my actions and practice compassion. Mm. How are you going with that? Yeah, not too bad. Better than before I wrote the book for sure because I hadn't even figured out that these were my new guiding stars. The compassion bit in particular is offered up in No Friend But The Mountains and some of Omid's writing as, well, like what is an alternative to, to Kiriaki, Kairiaki? Like what's the other direction? And one of the key tenets is taking accountability for your individual actions because a real problem with institutions is the way they absolve individuals of accountability. You know, if you try and ask who's responsible for the education system, you go to a boss, to a boss, to a boss, to a boss, and then there's actually no boss. You know, if you ask who is accountable for a corporation, you go to a boss, to a boss, to a boss, to a boss, to a million individual shareholders. There is like systems allow individuals to escape with no accountability. So individual accountability and individual compassion. A lot of the insecurities about my language abilities just really lifted off my shoulders when I started teaching English to a refugee because that is like one tiny thing that I can do that makes me realize that it doesn't matter how proficient I ever get in a different language. I already have one and one is enough, not just for myself, but to share with somebody else who gets more out of it ever than I could. Um, and the other thing is that I did decide in the end to do a PhD, but something I felt extremely strongly about, uh, which I not everyone agrees with, which is fine, but that's that if you're going to do study at an institution and you get either money or kudos or both from doing that study, in my opinion, you have an obligation to actually be able to articulate what value that gives back to society because you can't, I just think it's not good morals to gain from a system and not try and at least leave it a bit better than how you found it. For me, that was a real guiding principle in what I've decided to do for my PhD, which is look into why Australia doesn't have a defence for defamation proceedings for responsible journalism in the public interest and that I will now be spending the next sort of three years or so trying to lend what weight I possibly can to encourage defamation law reform that sees a bit more free press and a little bit less plaintiff-friendly defamation, which is having a chilling effect on whistleblowing. So for me, it was like, like when you ask that other question about insecurity, it's more just like, and maybe it's just as well getting, honestly, maybe it's just as well getting like a little bit older and feeling a bit more sure of myself. But I, now I'm less interested in the ornamental pots and I'm just more interested in what lets me sleep soundly at night. Mm. <laughs> and I just feel in a much better position quite a radically altered position, to be honest, from the start of researching for this book, what, three and a bit years ago compared to now, um, much more sure, yeah. So what advice then would you give the person at home wondering how do they not feed this system? That's a really good question. 
So it's sort of analogous to asking people how they can reduce their carbon footprint whilst knowing that, what is it, like five corporations contribute 80% of carbon emissions. Like, <laughs> um, and I certainly don't mean that from a sense of like hopelessness or that there is nothing an individual can do. Um, there absolutely is. And it, it can even be as simple as how you talk to your children about their achievements, like what you were saying. I think that makes a really big difference because I, when I was in the process of researching this book, I spoke to this one mum who was really frustrated that her children came home with fine report cards because the school only valued a narrow type of intelligence. And in my head, all I could think was, I reckon your kids know that you're disappointed when they come home with those fine report cards. You know, like every little interaction you have with people communicates your priorities to the people around you. That is something that, and I have to, and I do believe in the ability of individuals to, to change the tone of the conversations that are happening around them. But if we keep getting these same governments, I also don't want individuals to be made to feel more responsible than they actually are for some of these problems. In terms of policy, the first thing that I would say is to, um, I think I told you this the other day, it's like just need everyone to know don't call it childcare. call it early childhood learning early childhood education because this would be like the number one policy thing if I could pick to change something that would have I think some of the most profound intergenerational positive impacts is that I was so sad when I was researching this book to find out that one in five children 20% of kids in Australia start grade one not being able to meet their developmental milestones and of course, those children overwhelmingly come from the types of backgrounds where those families cannot then afford richly resourced private schools to help them catch up. And what we know every like decade more and more about early childhood development is that the first five and 10 years of your life can absolutely set the tone for what potential you are able to achieve for the whole rest of your life. And regardless of whether you think that you're someone whose politics is equality of opportunity or equality of outcome, I think we can agree 20% of five-year-olds being on the back foot is equality of absolutely nothing. Mm. And so as hardcore feminist as I am, it really frustrates me seeing the current debate about basically what should be described as early childhood learning for three mm. and four-year-olds. Like why is education from five and up a right and education for four and below welfare. Yes, it would be wonderful if as an auxiliary sort of side benefit to early childhood learning being free and right and available for young children, an auxiliary benefit is that you probably get more mums be able to return to work, sure. But framing the argument as though you're fighting for childcare so that mums can go back to work, I think actually misses the core, more important point about young people having a right to have a chance at a quality of education. Everyone, isn't she just a bloody delight? Get this book. I'm telling you, if you take one thing away apart from everything Bree said, take this away. Go and get this book. If you could see through, it's just it's just a wash with highlights, scribble notes, bookmarks. Bree, congratulations. It's outstanding. I'm so happy for you and I hope that you can enjoy this ornamental pot. Allow yourself <laughs> to enjoy it just for a little while and just trust that everyone, the 202 people that are watching at home are giving you a very, very, very big clap. Very well deserved. Well done. Thank you, Susan. It's like the single most flattering thing for an author is like an actually attentive and generous reader. And thank oh. you so much for your wonderful questions. I you really appreciate it. You made it easy. Everyone, go get the book. If you're in Victoria, oh, well, Melbourne, what else have we got to do? Nothing. <laughs> uh, all right, everyone, you are free to go. Bree, thank you so much and congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you and good night. 
you can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded. <laughs>